0: Thank you for your patience. I know some of you have been here very early this morning. I hope you've had a nice lunch. Um, Welcome to RP Fighting Blindness, four decades of discovery. and This is one of our patient information days. This is far north as we've ever been, so it's really exciting for us. And I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. My name is Sue Drew. I'm the Engagement Manager at RP Fighting Blindness. And I'd like to also introduce my colleagues, Denise Rawdens, our engagement officer, and she runs our helpline, our telephone and email helpline teams. And Tom is our communications manager, and he just does everything. It's fantastic. Now, his most important job today is he's going to look after your guide dogs. Um, so if there are water bowls for them, but if they need a walk and they need a break, Tom's your man, and he'll take them out and look after them. So just let us know, let any one of us know. Okay, so um, housekeeping, exciting stuff. There are no scheduled fire drills today, you'll be pleased to hear. So if it goes off, it's for real. Um, There is a fire exit now. You're facing me, so to your left at the front, there's a fire exit. There's one, if you're in the other room where we had lunch later for the tea break, there's one in there as well. And we muster in the car park, but don't worry, we will all get out safely together. In fact, let's not worry, there won't be a fire drill. Um, Toilets, I hope you've all found them by now, but if you go out of this room, the door's on your right, and you go back down the corridor, just past the room you had lunch in, there's toilets, ladies and gents, and I believe there's a disabled toilet, accessible toilet, sorry, there as well. Tea and coffee break later in the afternoon, back in that same room. Um, Is the light in this room okay for everyone? This is never a perfect art for us but we try to get the balance we um, we shut the curtains because I know that the daylight can be bright for some people. We won't be turning the lights off, don't worry, we won't be putting ourselves in the dark, um, but do let us know if you have any issues with the lighting or anything in this room. Uh, in your programme, there is a feedback form. If you need more than one, if you're sharing a programme, do let us know. Please, please, at the end of the day, please take the time, it's a very basic form to let us know how this goes because we are in the process of planning four of these events around the country next year and we can only improve them if we know what works and what doesn't work and what you found interesting. So please do take the time to do that. If you need help with it, let us know and we'll, we'll help you with that. Um, I'm going to quickly run through the programme because some people did mention, of course, they aren't able to see it. So I'm very quickly going to find it in my list here. So this obviously is well, we did the welcome registration, we've had lunch, we are going to after this I'm going to very briefly introduce Mark Hill from Optelec, you may have met him, he's in the other room as well, he's brought some fantastic equipment along today and he's just going to give you a few seconds um, to introduce himself and, and tell you about their services. Then I'm going to introduce your host for the day, Mr. Graham Finlay, who's Chief Executive at Northeast Sensory Services. Uh, at after that, the genetics of inherited retinal dystrophies, including RP, Usher syndrome, and all our related conditions, because we're a huge umbrella of conditions these days. Uh, it's Dr. Alison Ross, who's the consultant clinical geneticist at Aberdeen. Then we're making retina from stem cells. How, f- how far have we come, and how can gene editing help us? Uh, Dr. Carla Mellew, who's a senior research associate, Institute of Genetic Medicine at Newcastle University, and improving and using the retina derived from stem cells, Dr. Joseph Colin, who's a research associate at the Institute of Genetic Medicine, Newcastle University. Then we have a tea and coffee break. Then we have a sofa, what we call our sofa chat session. And our lovely volunteer, Mr. Colin Hetherington, is going to uh, run through that for us. And it's my RP journey, and it's going to be a sort of an interview style. And I hope you will really, really like, really enjoy that. And then we have the the panel Q&A session at the end, and closing remarks, and we're due to finish at five. I do know that some of you have had trains to catch, so obviously um, just let us know if you need any assistance. So I'm going to quickly, quickly introduce Mark, and he's going to do his bit, and then we'll get on to um, the presentations. Bear with
1: me. Thanks, Sue. Um, Can you all hear me okay? Okay, so uh, I represent a company called Optilec and we uh, offer a wide range of video magnifiers, reading machines, and all sorts of gadgets to help with reading. Um, I notice it's 40th anniversary. Actually, our 40th anniversary was <laughs> only last year. So we're a relatively young organisation. Um, we're here to about quarter past three, so do feel free to come and see us if you've not had a chance to yet. Um, also, we have a free prize draw. So win one of our little... Compact Plus HD magnifiers. So if you need a prize draw form, do hold your hand up and I'll bring one over to you. And uh, that's me done. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you, Mark. Right, okay, I'm going to introduce our host. He will get me intermittently because I'm going to introduce each, each speaker. Um, but I'm going to introduce Graham now, who's going to officially open the event for us.
2: Okay, welcome everybody to Aberdeen. Now that we're in Aberdeen, I wondered if we should just do the whole thing in Doric. (laughs) But we've got a few folk here from further afield, so they might struggle a wee bit with that. The event is being videoed, though, so we could possibly get some subtitles on as well and go watch it back. Doric? Fit fit like? uh, Maybe not. I'm just so happy that this is happening for a number of reasons, but Even this morning, I'd heard that Aberdeen Airport got closed because of the hole in the runway. uh, And then uh, Aberdeen was covered in fog a day, and I said, Oh my goodness, it's going to be me all day, sorry. (laughs) Um, But uh, no, so we're here, and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, About 27 years ago, myself and my sister, who's in audience today, we attended an information day on uh, services for people that were blind and partially sighted. That was the beginning of our RP journey so we've come full circle and here we are uh, today um, doing something very specific for RP so really really pleased that uh, uh, this is happening in Aberdeen a national conference. Um, So what I'm going to talk about in a moment is about local services that are provided by North East Sensory Services where I'm Chief Executive. Um, There's a few outcomes that I would like to see achieved today. I want us all to go away from today feeling a bit more informed, I want us to feel more supported and I want us to feel more positive about the future. So that's for us that have got RP or have been affected by RP or some of the related conditions. So I've got a very short presentation, I'll I'll briefly run through the wide range of services that my organisation, North East Sensory Services, provides, uh, so I'll start off with that. The first slide is just an introduction, NESS, North East Sensory Services, uh, our strapline achieving independence for blind and deaf people, I think that's crucial to everything the organisation does. And I've also got on the slides the three locations where NES operates uh, resource centres from one in Aberdeen, 21 John Street, I know a a lot of well-kent faces the audience, I know a number of you have been there, Uh, we're a new facility in Dundee, number 10 Constitution Road and in Murray Elizabeth House, Victoria Crescent. So that's where Ness operates from. You may pick up the sound effects going on there. Uh, What that effectively is, is when something changes on the screen, if you kind of see the screen, you might hear that, but we'll read every every bullet point that's on the screen as well. So the first one, who are Ness? Formerly Grampian Society for the Blind, which many of you will probably know us by. Um, second oldest uh, charity in Aberdeen. And originally set up to support blind and partially sighted people in the Aberdeen area. In fact, uh, a sweetie for anybody that can know the original name, in S. Hmm? Okay. <laughs> no, it w- prior to that it was the Aberdeen Town and Counties Association for Teaching the Blind at Their Homes. <laughs> you'd have got two sweeties, actually, if you'd got <laughs> it right. So, um, so we've changed a bit over the years, set up in 1879, and uh, we now support people with a significant sensory loss. So we support people that are deaf and hard of hearing, as well as people that are blind to partially sighted. And, of course, many of us who have a sight loss also have hearing impairment as well, um, and uh, so we've been doing joint sensory services, first full joint sensory service uh, operation in Scotland, Uh, so we now support, Our geography has widened as well, so we now support people with a significant sensory loss, not only in Grampian but also across Tayside as well, different types of support. From the 1st of October, uh, we will have 5,500 plus people known to us in accessing services, That's a significant date because we're a way to start delivering services to people who are visually impaired in Dundee as well. Previously it was deaf services there and it's now services for folk with a sight loss as well. So what do we do as an organisation? What it says in the tin is we exist to support service users to overcome the practical and emotional effects caused by serious sensory loss. And we do that by... Providing uh, a wide range of statutory and non-statutory services. For today's purposes, we would speak about statutory as being things that the council pays us to do. So it's more than just um, um, social work. There's other things that the council will provide us to do as well. And non-statutory services are the things that the charity funds ourselves either through trust fund income, fundraising, legacy income, etc. etc. So firstly, concentrating on some of the statutory-funded joint sensory services that the organisation does. This differs between local authority area because we have got different contracts with different local authorities. By law, local authorities have to provide support to people who are blind partially sighted, deaf and hard of hearing. Um, Some of those provide that in-house with different varying degrees of priority, others uh, and I would say the more forward-thinking ones, would they uh, ask local specialist organisations to provide services on their behalf. So there is Gnest Cover, Aberdeen City, Murray Council area, Angus now as well, we're providing support to people in Angus, Dundee. and uh, So there are some local differences, but an overview. Uh, we provide a comprehensive social work service and a rehabilitation service in most of those areas. Uh, Angus has slightly different arrangements for social work, but others we provide a full social work service. So, if you're registered blind or partially sighted for today's audience, your registration form, your BP1 as it's called in Scotland, gets sent to NES, and NES holds the register on behalf of these local authorities. What that then means is you don't actually need to be registered to get a service from NES, I should just throw that out there as well. But what that means is, if you're first seen by us, and you know, we'll we have a hospital information officer in Aberdeen, for instance, Eddie Carroll, of you may have may have met, uh, who, accident- who uh, uh, also has RP. You don't have to have RP to work for Ness, but there are a few of us. <laughs> uh, uh, so as soon as, as, soon as uh, your forms come to Ness, uh, you get visited by one of our qualified social workers within 14 days as a target. Within 28 days, a full assessment of need is carried out and then a whole host of services can then be offered and introduced to you depending on your specific needs. There's a rehabilitation service as well, so a rehab officer can support you with a whole host of different practical uh, elements of support, including long cane training uh, as well. Uh, So a whole host of things that, that NES can do for you through through that. That is effectively the gateway to a wide range of support. We also provide as part of that statutory support British Sign Language Service. Oh, that's said uh, thank you to for attending. It's just gone all wrong now. <laughs> what the heck happened there? <laughs> and there's a range of people I don't know. I've looked at my technical expert at the back now to say what have I done? Uh, so So I a question to see where, if anybody was listening, where was I? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, where was I? Yeah. So the one just slightly before that. Um, so there yeah, we go. So British Sign Language Service. Um, lip reading classes, we're on lip reading classes across. You may think, well, what's point of that for folks that are visually impaired? But a number of folk, as I mentioned already, have sight and hearing loss. And a provision of wide raid, a wide range of aids and adaptations we saw the optical stuff out there. if you visit any of the nest resource centers you'll see a wide wide range of different bits of bits and pieces of equipment that you can that you can access uh, to support you with very practical things that can affect you and, and the world has changed a lot in regards to technology at Aberdeenshire and perth we don't do the the visual <coughs> impairment statutory services there Aberdeenshire we do provide some of our added value services, which is the second half of what I'm going to talk about now. So the non-statutory added value services. I've just put up a wee picture there of Grampian because that's where the majority of our added value services currently are, although we are looking to do expansion into Tayside. Added value is effectively services that are funded, uh, what we would say in the charity sector, from a cocktail of funding. So including trust funds like the lottery, children in need so on, donations, uh, charitable income through fundraising events and so on, and all of that makes up uh, just over, we're around about half of the total budget that NEST needs to operate, so that's every year through all of these different sources, Legacies are another big one for us, NEST needs to bring in over a million pounds a year in charitable income to maintain the wide range of services that, that we, we have and offer for our service users. And in Tayside, I've mentioned different local arrangements, but because we're now developing joint sensory services in Dundee and Angus, our next big challenge is to deliver a lot of new new uh, added value services in that area as well. So what is, here's some examples of some of the non-statutory added value services across Grampian that, looking at Aberdeen, Moray and Aberdeenshire, uh, Again, different things for different parts of the, the region depending on how you're funded. So, for instance, in Aberdeen, we've got an employment service. Uh, it's funded through something called the Fairer Aberdeen Fund. So, again, it can only be used in Aberdeen, but it's a service that supports people uh, to maintain their job, get closer to the job market, or regain employment as well. A very successful project. It's only three days a week, and we support a load of folk in a year. And Below that, I've put a list of other services. uh, British Sign Language Interpreting Service, which is also featured the charity services as as well as the statutory service. Um, Transcription Service. We've got British Sign Sign Language DVD, but we also have our own recording studio, so we produce all sorts of material uh, and audio formats. I think we've eventually phased out the tape now, but we still have a CD memory stick people can download and use, newsletters and everything from our website. So whatever is your preferred form of receiving material, we can do that for you, uh, including Braille as well. Uh, we have mentioned the Hospital Information Service. It's based at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and the iClinic, and it helps fast-track people into services. I know myself, when I was first diagnosed, you just thought, what the heck's going to happen here? What's the future like? But we've got somebody there now that has a friendly face that can tell you, this is not the end of the world, this is just the start of a new journey. Um, the, we've a lending Library with over 3,500 audio books now. Uh, centre facilities, again, depending on uh, where you live depend, will depend on what facilities the resource centres have. We have a fitness suite in Aberdeen, so any of our service users that are here today that are from Aberdeen, they probably run here, they probably did not walk. You know, They're all really fit if they come to Aberdeen. <laughs> um, I heard a few groans, I've probably heard that one before as well. Uh, we do drop-in clinics for people with equipment that maybe faulty needs replaced, for a young person service uh, that supports uh, 18 years and uh, under. Um, again, it's all about building confidence and uh, helping uh, the youngsters uh, develop themselves and develop their skills going forward. Just continuing over the slide, a continuation, because there's a lot. Uh, there's over 25 support groups <coughs> of an ICT service which uh, some of the technology you've seen out there but we've somebody who would for instance teach you how to use things like JAWS and Supernova uh, the uh, all the different screen magnification things as well so we've uh, that's somebody's full time job who can do that and can come out to folks homes as well and support them if need be uh, oh, sensory awareness training or sensory awareness training officer Libby is in audience just now and Libby was the, Some of you would have probably met Libby earlier on her job is basically for awareness training for anybody really, professionals but also uh, for family members or anything that need to a wee bit of support uh, Libby can give you all sorts of information as well we're on cafes, we for CIS service which has nothing to do with the insurance company it's connect, inform and support which is for people that are older and uh, socially isolated and so it's about bringing them to support groups. There's one-to-one support as well. It's a lifeline for so many people that uh, are in that category. Volunteer support. We've over uh, 130 active volunteers registered with NESS from our directors on the board to throughout the organisation. We couldn't do half the things that we do as an organisation without the support of our volunteers. Um, Another added value service that we run and Aberdeenshire is a lip-reading class as well, so, so a, a wide range of services. NES also represent the needs of our service users, uh, an advocate at, na- at uh, a national level as well. Uh, so we're w- uh, involved in a wide range of influential committees, and that includes, well, locally and nationally, there's something called the See Here Strategy to Scottish Government Initiative, and it's about how you deliver services in the future for people with a significant sensory loss. So we represent Aberdeen City Council on that, but we're also members of the Sea Here group and all of the, the council areas that we, we operate in. Uh, there is a range of other national groups that NES are involved in, again, influential groups. Uh, the Scottish Council on Deafness, for instance, uh, uh, SCOD, The Scottish Council on Visual Impairment (SCOVIS), not to be mistaken as Stovis, and Visionary, which is a UK-wide umbrella group for uh, local blind societies. So we we uh, are—we're—I'm vice chair of that, and uh, BDNES, as an organisation, is a member of Visionary as well. And then there's the Scottish Government cross-party groups on deafness and visual impairment. So right at the heart of the Scottish Government, we have representation there, and we can try and influence and support change. There's the New Blind Register. That will be coming out at the end of this year and that started off as part of the see here strategy then found its way to the scottish government so there's all of that things that ness are around and influencing and supporting as well so that's just a very very quick rundown on local services uh, we'll all have time later for q and a but is there anybody got any burning questions just yet Bear in mind that uh, I have RP, so if you stick your hand up, you might have a sore arm. So shout out as well if you have. No? No. Okay. Okay. So Sue can introduce the next speaker. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Graham. Very well. I I actually carry RP myself and I have a child with RP and I just nearly knocked Graham over. So I'm very, very good. I'm doing well, aren't I? Okay, I'm going to introduce our next speaker is Dr. Alison Ross, who's a consultant in clinical genetics in Aberdeen and has been for the last five years. She previously trained in adult medicine, developing an interest in ophthalmic genetics and is jointly running a paediatric ophthalmic genetics clinic and this year has started an adult ophthalmic genetics clinic with Dr. Santiago and the retinal team. Um, Alison has to go a little earlier today, so we are having our Q&A session with the rest of the retinal team and Graham and Colin and everybody else this afternoon, but Alison will take some questions directly after her presentation. Put your hands up, and one of myself or uh, Denise or um, Tom will run round. We've got roaming mics. Because we're recording this session, we do need you to wait for the microphone, otherwise we won't be able to pick up um, what you say. And everyone else won't hear it. So is that okay? I will introduce Alison now.
3: <laughs> <way>. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. Um, well, thank you for that introduction and thank you for asking me to talk. Um, I've got the slightly <laughs> unenviable task of covering the genetics of inherited retinal dystrophies in half an hour. So um, it's quite a complex subject, and some of you probably know a lot about genetics, and I've been to the genetics clinic, um, while others may not know very much at all. So I, I hope um, I'm able to explain things. I, I'm going to try and just talk as if I was in the genetic clinic, um, so hopefully it'll be relatively easy to follow. But if you do have questions, please, please ask. Um, okay, and the slides are maim- mainly for my, my own, <laughs> to keep me right. So, because it's quite a big topic, um, I'm going to, t- to start with defining inherited retinal dystrophies, what we mean by that, um, and just mention one or two of the conditions. Um, I'm going to spend some time talking about the main inheritance patterns that we see in families. Um, and a little bit of time talking about the genetic clinic, what we do, what you might expect to, t- to talk about or to happen if you were referred to the clinic, um, and a wee bit about genetic testing. So, so what do we mean by an inherited retinal dystrophy? So I, I've just broken this down by the words. So, retinal, um, so the retina is the light-sensitive film at the back of the eye that detects light. Um, dystrophy is a condition, a degenerative condition that affects an organ or tissue. And by inherited in this context, I, I really mean genetically determined. So sometimes it's inherited in a family. Sometimes it's new in that individual for the first time in the family. OK. So an inherited retinal dystrophy is really a condition um, that's caused causing reduced or deteriorating vision. In both eyes. And it's not a single condition, but a general name given to quite a wide range of eye conditions. And really, it encompasses um, conditions that start in childhood right through to adult life. So, if we think a little bit about the retina, the retina um, is a very specialized tissue. Um, with two main types of cell that detect light, called rods and cones. And there's there's other parts that make up the retina as well as the rods and cones, but um, they're the cells that that are important for detecting light. And rods are really good for detecting movement, um, for vision in in dim light, in the dark, and for seeing in black and white. And uh, they're mostly found in, in the outside of the retina. So our peripheral vision. So really the rods help us to kind of walk around without bumping into things um, and they're particularly helpful at night or in dim light. The cones are mainly found in the centre part of the retina and they're they're important for seeing in daylight, for seeing fine detail um, and colour vision. So they're important for, you know, looking at photographs, reading, recognizing faces. And uh, different conditions affect these cells differently, and sometimes the pattern of um, the problems that we see can give us an idea of what what the likely underlying cause of the problem might be. Um, So most inherited retinal dystrophies, the majority of them, The effects are confined to the retina, and it's a visual problem that that you have. Um, The most common form is retinitis pigmentosa, which is a rod cone dystrophy. It affects the rods first, Um, but we also see cone-rod dystrophies, Um, we can see very early onset retinal dystrophies like Leber's congenital amaurosis, which starts in very early childhood. Um, and there are other forms of retinal dystrophy that affect the central vision, like Stargardt's disease and BEST. There are, sorry.
4: <laughs>
3: so some, some retinal dystrophies, um, are seen as part of a pattern of problems that affect other parts of the body, and where a condition affects more than one organ. Um, or has more than one symptom, we call this a syndrome. Um, and we know of at least 30 different syndromes that include retinal dystrophy as part of that condition. And the commonest of those are types of Usher's syndrome um, and bardi biedl So as you can see already, retinal dystrophies are a very broad group of conditions um, with you know, a, a, range, a range of causes, um, and a range of symptoms. So um, because of that, we can already <laughs> anticipate that the genetics is going to be quite complex. Um, we know that there are probably more than 200 different genes that are known to cause forms of retinal dystrophy, and there's probably others that have still to be identified. So it's a large number of genetic causes. and. In, there are three main forms of, or three main inheritance patterns that we tend to see. Um, and there there are rarer there are rarer types as well, but I'm not going to talk about those specifically this afternoon. Okay, so, right. So before we go on to talk about inheritance patterns. I think it's important to understand a little bit about biology and genetics and how that works. So our bodies are made up of cells, just like a house is made up of bricks. And inside those cells, we have a set of instructions called genes. And genes are filed on chromosomes. And I've just put up a picture of chromosomes here to to give you an idea of what they might look like down the microscope. So they look, they're a bit like sausage shaped. with, of different lengths, and they've got different stripy patterns. And if we line them up by the stripy pattern and the length, we see that they're in pairs. Okay. And we've all got 23 pairs of chromosomes. Um, 22 of those pairs match, um, and the other pair are the sex chromosomes, which are called X and Y. So this, um, this picture is of female who has two X chromosomes, um, and the, this is this picture is of a male who has one X chromosome and a Y chromosome that makes a difference. And the, the reason I'm showing you this is to show that we've got two copies of all the genes, um, except for men, who have one copy of the genes on the X chromosome, um, and the genes on the Y chromosome are really to do with making a male. Okay. And we get one of each pair of chromosomes from each of our parents. And um, so the chromosomes are inside the cells. And this picture um, shows a a chromosome being pulled out in a long strand just to show you that chromosomes are made up of a long strand of DNA. And DNA is just like a twisty ladder and the rungs of the ladder a code that um, to put building blocks into proteins, and proteins are what make up our bodies. Okay. And when some, something, when there's a change in the code, sometimes that can change the protein or change um, the way the, the gene, read, the body reads the code of that gene. That means that it's not doesn't work in the usual way. Um, and that's what caused genetic conditions. Okay. So, so th- there are three main types of inheritance pattern that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to start with autosomal dominant inheritance. Um, and th- there are a whole range of retinal dystrophies that can be inherited in this way. Um, and the, the, in dominant inheritance a change in just a single copy of a gene is sufficient um, for that gene not to work well and to cause the condition. Okay? So an infected individual has a usual copy of the gene and one that's changed. That causes the problem. When they have children, it's like tossing a coin a 50-50 chance whether the child inherits the usual copy and is unaffected or whether they inherit the changed copy and they inherit the condition. So each child has a 50% risk of inheriting the condition um, and that is irrespective of whether they're male or female. And usually in in a family where we see this type of inheritance, we see it passing down through the generations in a family, so often an affected individual has and eff- will have had one or other parent who's been affected um, with the condition. Um, occasionally, in a family, a n- new change can happen in that individual for the first time in the family. Um, so there isn't a history for th- in previous generations. So that, that happens occasionally. Okay, so there are another group of conditions that are inherited in what we call a recessive way. And in recessive inheritance, you need a change in both copies of the gene before you develop the condition. And somebody who's got a change in just one copy of the gene is what we call a carrier of the condition. So usually when we see an uh, individual affected with a a recessive condition... Um, their parents will be carriers of the condition and being a carrier usually doesn't have any implications for your own health. Okay, But if your partner's a carrier of the same thing, then there's a one in four chance that a child can I- inherit two altered copies of the gene and be affected. Um, there's a 50% chance that they could be carriers and there's a one in four chance that they inherit neither copy either changed copy, um, and they're unaffected, and they're not a carrier. Kay. So the th- final inheritance pattern that I wanted to mention is the X-linked recessive inheritance. So that this is where the changed gene the, the, is filed on the X chromosome. Um, and in this pattern of inheritance, the m- males in the family tend to be more affected than the women in the family um, because they don't have a second copy of the genes on the X chromosome. Um, women are said to be carriers of the condition um, because they have a second copy of that gene that can compensate. Um, however, you know some women who are, are carriers can have symptoms of the condition as well, but they're usually milder um, and start at an older age. So it's much more variable in in women in the family. Um, And if a woman is a carrier, if she has a son, there's a 50-50 chance that her son might inherit the X chromosome with the changed copy of the gene and inherit the condition. Um, And likewise, if she has a daughter, there's a 50-50 chance that her daughter might inherit the changed copy of the gene and be a carrier of the condition. Um, If you're a a man affected by this type of condition, then all your daughters will inherit your X chromosome, so they'll all be carriers, but none of your sons will be affected. So... um, I'm just going to move on to talk about a bit about the genetic clinic and how it's set up and what sort of things we do. So uh, um, we have, we run, we cover the northeast of Scotland um, with our genetic service. So um, we're mainly based in Forrester Hill, Ashgrove House, but we do outreach clinics in Inverness and Kirkwall and Lurwick as well. Um, and just as um, Sue mentioned, We've had a joint op- paediatric ophthalmic genetics clinic running for some time, um, but this year we've, we've also introduced an adult joint clinic which runs in the eye clinic. So, um, If you're referred or if you want to come along to the genetic clinic, what usually happens, so I, I'm, I'm a doctor but we also work with genetic counsellors in, in our department. Um, and you, so you might be contacted initially by a genetic counselor who would get some information about the family tree, um, you know, find out if there's other relatives with the same condition, maybe find out more information about them. Um, sometimes because there are conditions that have other medical problems associated, sometimes we may need to examine you. Um, occasionally it's useful to examine other people in the family to try and work out the inheritance pattern. Um, But really, the the clinic visit is, once we've got the family history, um, we try to make an assessment of the likely inheritance pattern and what the risks might be to other people in the family. Um, And we have a discussion with you about that. Um, And we can also discuss whether genetic testing is something you would find useful or not. So, genetic testing, why, w- why would we want to do genetic testing for any of these conditions? Um, I think, so it, it's, it obviously can give you an answer. You know, a lot of people want to know, well, why has this happened to me? You know, what's the underlying cause? And I think understanding what the cause is can be very helpful sometimes for families and for individuals. Um, if we can get an accurate diagnosis, um, then we can, we can help clarify why this has happened. Um, sometimes we're asked to do genetic testing because people want to know well, what's the future going to hold. Can you tell me anything about how this is going to progress in the future? And sometimes we can say something about that. Um, I think though so that you know sometimes there's a limit to how much information we can give about that, even when we understand what the underlying cause is. And that's really because some of these genes are only newly identified, we don't know very much about them, um, and we're still learning uh, what the prognosis is. And some of these conditions are very, very variable even within the same family. So even once you understand what the cause is, it doesn't always tell you a great deal about what the future will hold. Um, I think families sometimes ver- find it very helpful to be able to clarify the inheritance pattern. Um, you know, Are other family members at risk um, or are they not at risk? Um, it opens up, it can open up the opportunity for other relatives to have predictive testing, to have carrier testing. Um, And some families, um, if it's a very severe condition, they might might want prenatal testing or even pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So having a genetic diagnosis can help with those things. Um, And the other big driver that we're seeing more and more is that People are quite keen, um, because they've heard about gene therapy trials, Um, so they're quite keen to sort of establish what the genetic cause is in them, so that if there's a trial that's being held for that condition, they might be eligible to take part in that. Um, And I I think that certainly that is a a valid reason for wanting to pursue genetic testing. I think we have to be realistic so that there's only trials in a very few specific conditions at the moment, um, and at, at the moment it doesn't, even if we know understand the cause, it doesn't always lead to anything better in terms of treatment at the moment. Hopefully that will change in the future. So the s- sorts of genetic tests that are available. Um, so in, in the past, our genetic testing was very limited. And we could only really look at one or two of the genes. Um, And if you've got a very classical pattern of symptoms, it might still be useful just to do a single gene test um, in some families. I think more and more, though, we're moving towards panel tests because there are so many genes involved. um, And there's so much overlap between the, the genes and the types of pattern that you see in the back of the eye, it's not always easy to say, well, it's this gene or that gene. So we're moving towards what we call panel tests. Um, and this is where you can test a whole, a, a large number of genes in a single test. Um, and I most com- commonly use the Manchester panel, which I think at the moment includes about 176 genes, but it's being developed all the time. And as we learn more about genetic causes, they can. If there's new genes discovered, they can add them into the panel. So it, it's evolving. Um, but at the moment, I think it's about 176 genes that are on the panel. Um, obviously, that if you're testing 176 genes at one go, that gives you a lot of information. Um, and interpreting that information can be challenging. <laughs> so... Um, and the, the problem with that is that there is a lot of variation that we see between people, and uh, some of that is just what, you know part of what makes us all different. Um, it doesn't necessarily the cause of the retinal problem. Um, and trying to work out which changes are important and which are just background changes can be quite difficult um, and needs quite a bit of work. Um, looking at the literature, looking at um, computer models, um, and discussion with clinicians—you know—is—is is this a gene that we would expect might cause this pro- pattern of problems, or not? So, so sometimes the the results can be quite difficult to interpret, um, and we. Okay, so. And we don't. They don't. It doesn't always give us a clear answer about the underlying cause of the problem. Um, There are so sometimes we find a a change that we just aren't able to say for sure, one way or the other, is this the cause or not? So that can be quite frustrating if we find a variant that we just don't really know what it means. the other thing is because we're testing so many different genes all at once, sometimes we can find a change in a, a gene that's probably not relevant to your condition, um, but it, it's a change that might mean you're a carrier or something that we didn't expect. So that sometimes does crop up because we're, doing, we're looking at so many different genes at once. Um, and we're starting to find that things aren't quite as nice and simple as we thought. <laughs> And that, that you know sometimes things don't quite follow the nice um, inheritance patterns that we 've just discussed, and and changes in other genes can influence the pattern of problems that we see, so it 's not always straightforward to interpret the results of the test. Um, at the moment, with our current testing, we are able to reach a specific diagnosis in about half to sixty percent of families, individuals. So, that's still quite a large proportion that we don't get an answer for, um, and that's, you know, that's obviously frustrating. But I think that's partly um, because some of these things are difficult to interpret, and probably because there are still new genes that we don't yet know about. And there are obviously new initiatives, um, not currently in recruiting patients in Scotland, I don't think, but there is the RP Genome Study um, that is run in a few centres in England. um, And there's also the 100,000 Genomes Project, um, which includes some patients with rare diseases. And those studies are really aimed at finding new genes that we didn't know caused this problem. So, um, okay. So, I was just going to mention briefly a bit about the gene therapy trials. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will be aware, I mean, they've had a lot of publicity, they've been on the national news, um, that there are some gene therapy trials for a few forms of inherited retinal dystrophies. And the, the premise of these is that um, they're using a essentially a viral um, vector to to put the gene that's not working back into the cells in the retina. Um, and there's been there's been three, well, there's, there's maybe one other trial as well in the Middle East somewhere, but there's been one for RP sixty five, Stargardt's, and choroideremia. Um, and these are really all phase one or very early phase two trials. So that means that they've been shown to be it's been shown to be safe and effective in animal models, and this is taking it to the next step of um, is it safe in you know to treat patients with? So phase one really is about safety, um, and once it goes on to phase two, it's starting to look at how effective it is. Is it a good treatment? So they're really still at a quite an early stage. They, obviously, they're showing some promising results, and there's a great hope that this will be something we can do more of in the future. Um, but you know, at the moment, it's very limited wh- what uh, these trials are doing. Um, so we still need a lot more uh, information from bigger trials before we can say that this is a treatment that works Um and even then, it's only in very particular form. So I don't know how generally applicable that might be to all the different types of inherited retinal dystrophies that we see. But it's certainly an exciting development. Okay. So I think I want to stop there. Um, we've talked about the wide range of inherited retinal dystrophies, patterns of inheritance, and the role of the genetic clinic and genetic testing. Um, so if there's any questions, I'm happy to take them now. I can't stay for the Q&A session, I'm afraid. Yeah.
0: Hi, it's Sue again. I was just going to say, if you could just remember to put your hand up and wait for the mic, because we all won't hear you and won't be able to hear the, uh, record the answer. Um, thank you.
4: Uh, hello there, it's uh, Ali Burt. Um, I come from a, a ex- uh, ex-dominant linked family, <coughs> and it's pretty clear what our um, branch of RP is, if you like to put it that way. But going with what you're saying, is there no, uh, is there a chance that some of these uh, different
1: conditions within under the uh, RP umbrella can be mixed? Uh, and it's not, I think I was picking up that they're not so clear as we used to think they are.
3: Um. Okay, I think I've confused you.
4: (laughs) No, it's just me. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, No, what I I was trying to say was, you know, sometimes when we do genetic testing, we find, you know, changes in maybe a gene that would explain part of the answer, but we might find a, a change in a different gene that may be also contributing to the picture. I think you know in in your family it, well it's difficult to you know comment on a on an individual case but it sounds as though if it's very well established mm. as an excellent family then you know that's it, it's some for some of the rarer genes and some of the new genes we don't know so much about them um, and we can find confusing things on the new panel test so it was really just to Say that that sometimes confuses the picture. I think if you've got a very clear X-linked family history and there's a clear change in the family, um, you know that that's not likely.
0: <laughs> Just going to say it wouldn't change the inheritance pattern, no, would it? Even it if you didn't know the account. specific gene. Okay.
4: Hi. My mother has normal vision, and she's never been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. But uh, I'm wondering if there's any link between the Usher's syndrome and cataracts, which my mother has. Okay. Um,
3: Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. Any other
1: questions?
3: So, yeah. um, <coughs> there is no history of RP in my fa- in my family, and I was only diagnosed with it when I um, went to get My eyes uh, tested for for reading uh, specs. Now uh, there is. No evidence in my children of of having any form of that. My grandchildren are still quite young, mm-hmm. but uh, is there li- any likelihoods of them being involved? Um, it's not likely. Uh, so often, when we see just one person in the family that's affected, it's often because it's a recessively inherited problem not not always, but often, so you know in that situation, although your children and your grandchildren might be carriers of the condition, they would be unlikely to be affected so obviously I don't know specifically in your case because you know, and we could do genetic testing mm-hmm. if that would help, but um, as a sort of general rule often. It's because it's a recessively inherited. So often, an isolated case in a family um, is because it's been recessively inherited in the family. So uh, that's all I can say because I don't know specifically the details of your case.
5: I have RP and there's no trace of it in my family, and I had a gene test, and it's turned out that I have it X-linked in the RP2 gene. Would gene therapy be
1: applicable to me for going for gene therapy trials?
5: Um, At
3: at the moment, there aren't any um, gene therapy trials for the RPGR gene. Um, Whether that will come in the future, I can't say, um, but it's not... It's not one of the specific ones that there's trials running for at the moment. Okay.
4: What else? Uh, there's no uh but there's no uh, history at all of retinitis pigmentosa either. The two families, they've no, got two adult sons, both le- both have learning disabilities, and both with RP at an advanced stage. I'm interested to know: Is there any link to learning disability itself and retinitis pigmentosa?
3: Um, well, some of the syndromes can there can be a link um, with RPN learning disability. So um, I, I don't know if they've ever been assessed in the genetics clinic, but um, you know it, it might be that they have one of these syndromic causes that's you know, underlying both things, it might be that they're unrelated, but it's unusual for two people in the family to have a very similar pattern of problems that aren't related.
4: Would it be worthwhile then to sort of perhaps think about genetic testing? and
3: um, It's certainly, you know, it might give you an answer as to, to why that's happened. Um, yeah.
4: I'm the only person in my family who h- has ushers and I'm also profoundly deaf. Uh, all of the other members of my family have excellent hearing and listening skills. Um, and I'm wondering if, yeah, and I was wondering if it was going to be passed on to any other members of the younger family and we have had genetic testing done and the children have been diagnosed as not having ushers. And as is, is there any way of collecting information when parents or grandparents have then passed away, is there a way of getting genetic testing done in hindsight? Um,
3: not really, unless they'd had the sample stored when they were alive. We've got
0: time for one more question, if there is another one. Oh, Graham, <laughs> behind you, Denise. Uh,
2: Ness, and maybe after today as well, we'll get people asking us, how do we refer to the genetic clinic? So wh- wh- what direction should we push folk in?
3: Um, probably just ask their GP for a referral, or, or um, ask if they're going to the eye clinic, they could ask to go to the um, genetic joint the Ophthalmic Genetic Clinic, um, or to be referred directly. So.
0: Thank you. Um, I just want to give a shout out for RP Fighting Blindness, because I think we deserve it. The RP Genome Project, for those that you get a regular newsletter will probably know, it was the biggest, it's our biggest funded project. Along with the iResearch charity Fight for Sight, we put £1.2 million pounds into that project. We're halfway through, we've found some new genes and our aim is to find the missing genes. So we hope, hope in the future, that one day we will have identified them all, which hopefully will mean everybody will be able to get a genetic molecular diagnosis, um, which I think I have that in my family and I think it's a very important thing for my family because we've had ours 12 years and I now know that there is research, very early research, but because we have the name of the gene and the mutation, we're able to recognise it when, it's, when it comes up, that that research is taking place. And that's an investment in my, for me personally, for my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, for the future. So I'm a big advocate of the genetics <laughs> clinic, to be honest. But I'd like to say, you know, that's the hard work of volunteers and fundraisers who support the charity that have funded that work. So I think it's worth mentioning. So can I thank Alison for her wonderful presentation. (laughs) For maybe an hour, and they're going to do their presentations back to back. So Dr. Carla Mellieu, born in Scotland, but moved to Australia when she was 12 years old. Studied a degree in human biology at the University of Western Australia, and went on to do her PhD in retinal neuroscience at the same university. Carla moved back to Durham in the UK for her first post, sorry, I thought I'd missed a line, I haven't, first post-doctorate position in 2003, then moved to Newcastle to start working with Professor Linda Leco in her stem cell lab at the end of 2007. Her work in Linda's lab has largely focused on making retinal tissue in the lab from human stem cells. This has involved how to make this process more efficient, how to help the retinal tissue they are making in the lab grow to become more mature, and which growth factors are important in this process. She is also particularly interested in human eye development and disease, and trying to understand the problems underlying currently incurable forms of blindness so that she can work towards a cure. And then we have Dr. Joseph Collett. Joseph, sorry, I just want to say Joe because that's what we call you. Joe acquired his doctorate from Newcastle University in 2008 in cancer cell biology. He then started working with stem cells in 2009 at a research institute in Valencia, Spain. He then returned to Newcastle University in 2011 and began research on the retina where he utilised stem cell technologies to investigate retinal diseases and potential therapies. His research has largely focused on the causes of various retinal diseases, improving the production of retinal sorry, of retina from stem cells, and the editing of genes to help these studies. And I'm going to brag on behalf of the charity again. Our first innovation project put money it was 150,000 pounds to was the start of the research. So um, yeah, so again, the charity is helping to fund our own research. So hopefully ultimately find treatments for our conditions. So I'm going to hand over to Carla now.
6: Hello, good afternoon. Thank you, Sue, for the lovely introduction. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. If for some reason I move away from the microphone and you can't hear me, just stick your hand up and I'll go closer, okay? So what I would like to do today is to give you an introduction about stem cells. What are they? where do they come from, and what properties do they have. Um, I'm sure you've heard all about these, but I'll I'll sort of introduce some of the terms that we use when we describe stem cells in the lab. I'll then then take you on a quick tour of the human eye, um, and then I'll go on to discuss about how far we've come in making retinal tissue in the lab from stem cells. And I'll then pass over to Joe, who will talk to you a bit about genetic engineering. So I'm showing a cartoon here, and the title of the cartoon is Stem Cell Parental Advice. And what you can see is it's a lab setting, there's a microscope, and there's a petri dish, which is um, the the dishes we use to grow our cells. And there's a parent stem cell saying to the baby stem cell, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. And I particularly like this analogy because this is exactly true. So the, the word that we use to define stem cells is pluripotent. And this is exactly what pluripotent means. A pluripotent cell is a cell that, like an embryonic stem cell, which can go on to become any tissue type or any cell type in the body at all. And the stem cells that researchers use in the lab are most often pluripotent. So where are they found? So during normal development, um, the, the, the structure after the fertilization of the egg, so once the sperm has met the egg, About four or five days after fertilization, this structure is called a blastocyst. And a blastocyst essentially is just a little cluster of cells inside a a sort of outer shell. And this outer shell goes on to become the placenta. And the little cluster of cells on the inside, which we call the inner cell mass, is where these embryonic stem cells are found. So when this little blastocyst implants into the wall of the mother's uterus, It grows and it develops, and this inner cell mass goes on to give rise to all the different tissues and organs as the embryo develops over time. (coughs) So the first stem cell lines actually to be grown in the laboratory were reported in 1998 by an American biologist called Jamie Thompson. And what he showed is that you can take the inner cell mass from blastocysts, which were spare blastocysts, which had been left over from couples who had undergone IVF procedures. So if they had had successful pregnancies and they didn't need their blastocysts anymore, um, and these were just going to sit in a freezer for years on end until the end of time, um, the, the couples would donate their blastocysts and he took them and he dissected out this inner cell mass, he put them into a petri dish in the lab, and he worked out what these cells needed to thrive and grow and survive. So he came up with a sort of cocktail of of like a feeding sort of medium. So how to feed the cells, how to keep them happy, what sugars they like, keep them warm and, and, you know, sort of humid at 37 degrees. And he showed that if you keep these cells under the right conditions, that they will continue to divide and produce more of themselves. And so you can start with a very small cluster of stem cells, but you can allow these to grow in the lab and you can end up with millions and millions upon millions of them and you can keep them happy over time. And this was a really important advance for scientists because prior to this time we had no way at all to look and to study human development whatsoever. So for the first time we had this starting population of cells which normally go on to give rise to all of the tissues of a a human body in the embryo. And we could actually not only look at how the stem cells behave but we could then try and form the different tissues that these stem cells normally make because these stem cells are pluripotent meaning that you can then make any tissue type you like from them. And it turns out that you can use different recipes, or we call them protocols, to form different types of, of cells from stem cells. So if you want to make muscle cells, for example, then you bath your cells in a particular sort of growth feeding medium. If you want to make neurons, for example, you bath them in a different medium that has different factors in it. And researchers now have developed lots of different protocols to make lots of different tissue types, from stem cells that they use in the lab. Also, this, uh, this provided for the first time an excellent resource of cells for, transplanta- for, for transplantation, um, and th- this is clear. Um, so previously, we'd use porcine tissue, for example, from pigs or from cows, and we tried to transplant from different species into humans, um, but there were problems with immune rejection um, and the tissue not being similar enough to the human tissue to allow certain tissues to integrate long-term. So this was a really fantastic advancement. However, nonetheless, even though this was a a great breakthrough for scientists, because this work involved the use of blastocysts and because this essentially could have ended up as being a human life, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the use of human embryonic stem cells, even though they would have sat in the freezer until the end of time. People were still uncomfortable about this and this really hampered stem cell research for quite some time. This was until a major breakthrough came in 2006 from a Japanese researcher called Shinya Yamanaka. And he revealed to the world, and the world was quite shocked at this time because we didn't think this was possible, that actually you can take a mature adult cell, for example your skin cell, so just take a little biopsy of your skin, and you can. what he did is he forced the expression of four genes in these cells. So he introduced the expression of genes already exist in the human genome, but they're normally very active during human development, so they're very highly expressed in human embryonic stem cells. And when they become an adult cell, when they become a skin cell, we still have that, those genes written in our DNA, but they're not active at that time. So what he did is he found a way to make those genes very active in these skin cells, and what this did is it hit the reset button on the skin cells. So he tricked the skin cells into thinking that they were actually back in, inside this blastocyst and that they were embryonic stem cells and they still had to go through normal development and make all the different tissues in the body. So hitting the reset button in this way allowed, um, allowed him to take skin cells from a patient, for example, and then to reset them back into an embryonic stem cell-like state. Um, and then what you can then do, why this is so incredible, is you can look at patient-specific stem cells, you can grow different tissues from these stem cells, and in the case of where a patient might be carrying a faulty gene, you can look at how this faulty gene is affecting different tissue types. So this was a really incredible advancement, and the first work he reported was conducted in mouse, and within a year, he had managed to do the same feat in humans. So in 2007, this is when these cells were born, if you like, and these we call these cells induced pluri- pluripotent stem cells, which is a bit of a mouthful. So you've got your human embryonic stem cells, which are derived directly from the inner cell mass of a blastocyst that would normally implant into the uterus. And you've got your induced pluripotent stem cells, which are from adult tissue. And they both act very similarly. They both look the same. They grow the same way. They act very similarly. Um, and Joe and I work with them you know, quite regularly in the lab, and you know, I'm sure Joe will tell you as well, they're very, very similar to the embryonic counterparts. So this was a fantastic advancement. Um, just before I go into what we can do with our stem cells, Alison gave us a really lovely introduction about genetics in the retina, um, but I'll just, I'll just sort of reiterate some of that um, and give you a wee bit more information before telling you about making eye tissue in the lab. So, as Alison said, the, the retina is a light-sensitive tissue lining the back of the eye. It's a very delicate, very thin tissue. It's almost like a bit of soggy tissue paper lining the back of the eye. But although it's very thin, um, it's incredibly complex, and it's a very, very smart tissue. It obviously turns light sync signals into electrical signals that are then passed to our brain, so we can see what's in our visual field. And the retina itself is made up of lots of different layers, if you like. So there's different layers, um, all piled on top of each other, a bit like the layers of a cake. And each of these layers have distinct cells um, that live within these layers, and they all have different functions. So our photoreceptors, which are our light-sensitive cells, are found in this this outermost layer. So these line really, really towards the back of the eye. And our ganglion cells, which take the information to our brain through our optic nerve, they have a really long process that connects what's happening in the retina to the brain. They're found at the front of the retina. And then you've got lots of layers in between that help process this information to take it to the brain. Um, And underneath the photoreceptors is a very important um, epithelium. It's just like like a skin tissue, if you like. And it's highly pigmented. It's almost black. It's a very dark brown and this is called your retinal pigmented epithelium. And your retinal pigmented epithelium is very important for the health and vitality of your photoreceptors. So when your pigmented epithelium gets sick, um, it's harder for nutrients from the blood supply to pass to your photoreceptors. It's harder for the waste products from your retina to go back into the blood circulation to be taken away. So this sort of special bond that they have is broken, and that can cause like bad health of the photoreceptors. Likewise, if the photoreceptors are sick, sometimes they can make the underlying retinal pigmented epithelium sick. So some conditions are caused by the photoreceptors being affected first. Some conditions are caused by this retinal pigmented epithelium being affected first. And some can be simultaneous. So it's quite varied. And obviously thinking about all all the genetic um, variations which Alison introduced, you can understand why this can be quite complex. So, as Alison mentioned, there's two, two some types of photoreceptor cells, both of which are highly specialised. And they're sort of like space-age cells. They're super specialised and they've got, they look incredible. They've got a very interesting shape. So your two types of your photoreceptors are your rods, which are important for your night vision, for motion detection, things like that. And that is in the peripheral retina. So it's in the area sort of surrounding, the sort of outside of your retina. And in this towards the centre of the retina, um, in your fovea, which is your sort of, where your light focuses. Um, You've got your cone photoreceptors. You've got the highest concentration of your cone photoreceptors in your central retina, where your light hits when you're really focusing on something. And it's your cone photoreceptors which are responsible for your high visual acuity. So reading a book, driving a car, and also there's three different types of cone photoreceptors, and they allow you to see all the different combinations of colour in your environment. So they both contain very specialised machinery attached to them. So cells cells have a sort of body, if you like, so there's sort sort of a main body like a person, and the heart of the cell is its nucleus, and this is where all the genetic information is contained. But photoreceptors have this incredible sort of extension growing out of them, and this is called your outer segment. And your outer segment is when the light hits the back of your eye, It's the the, the proteins and the molecules in this structure, the outer segment, which allow the the light to be transferred into electrical signals and for us to see. In rods, as the name suggests, um, it's almost like if you think about stacks of poker chips of the same size, all stacked up, making a big, tall cylinder of poker chips. That's what the rod outer segment looks like. Whereas with the cone photoreceptors, it's as though you start with a very big poker chip closest to the body of the cell, and these chips get smaller as you move away from the cell body, so it's a bit like an upside-down ice cream cone shape. So they're very easy to identify for us scientists because they they look very distinct, and they they really sort of set themselves apart from the rest of the cell types in the retina. So I've given you a wee bit of an introduction about stem cells um, and about the retina itself. Um, And what I'd like to do now is to tell you a little bit about what I've been doing and how far we've come in making eye tissue in the lab. Well, if you go back about 10 years, the early attempts to make retina from stem cells were quite limited. And that's because researchers at the time were growing their cells in two dimensions. And by that I mean, if you think about the Petri dish, they were adding their cells onto the surface of the petri dish, and it was almost just like a fine coating of cells growing on on the surface of the petri dish. So there was one cell that was surrounded by its neighbours, but it didn't have anyone on top of them or underneath them. So it wasn't how we find cells normally in the body, which are found in a sort of 3D environment. All your organs and tissues, they're not flat, you know, they're sort of spheroid or elongated, and it's a nice population of cells all sitting together and signalling to each other and all working together making them functional. So we were able to make some types of retinal cells, but it wasn't working very well because we just didn't have the right conditions for these retinal cells to thrive. And this was until June in t- 2012, and I remember this, I'll never forget this day. So a Japanese researcher called Yoshiki Sasai, he pr- um, published a paper showing that retinal tissue for the first time could be grown in 3D, like a normal retina that you see in the eye. So it, had, uh, it, was, it was like a sort of um, aggregate of cells. So it's like a sort of ball of cells which had different layers, just, just like the retina that, that you see in the normal eye. And when we have a structure that has lots of layers together and that they're found in the way that you, you normally find them during development, um, a scientist called that, that structure laminated. So he showed that you could, from stem cells, grow them, make retina, and end up with a beautiful laminated retinal tissue which looked just like the retina you see in someone's eye. So this was an incredible breakthrough for the field, and what this meant as well was that a massive shift in how people went about their cell culture and growing their cells. So we moved away from the sort of thinly sort of spread out cells in two-dimensional culture, and everybody started to try and progress their work by growing everything in three dimensions. So instead of sticking your cells down on the surface, we were let, letting them flow around freely. So, if you think maybe about if you have a dish of, of fluid and if you drop a grape into it, and the grape can sort of freely move around, you know, if it wants to float over there, it can, you know, if you can, you know, it's basically if it wants to grow bigger, it can, it can do whatever it wants. So, we were allowing them to, to sort of grow in a much more free way, and actually, this really helped with um, all of the different cell types we were able to achieve. And it is incredible such a simple thing can make such a difference when you think about it. So about the same time, using a different protocol, using a different recipe, I was actually seeing exactly the same thing because my job in Linda's lab was to try and make retina from stem cells. So I'd looked back at human development. I'd looked at what was important in order to initiate eye development in human embryos. And I had bought those factors from companies and I was adding them into my dish where my stem cells were growing to try and encourage them to make retinal cells. And I was actually doing some work um, in two dimensions, but I noticed that some of my cells really did not want to stick down. And at first, this is very frustrating because you have it's like having babies. You have to go in and feed them every day. You know, you need to keep them fresh. You need to keep them happy. So when I was going in to feed the babies, they were essentially... I mean, they're not, they're not really babies. I just call them my babies. When I was going in to feed the eyeballs... <laughs> Um, that sounded really wrong there. Dis- disclaimer. Um, when I went in to feed them, these ones that were floating were, were causing me a lot of hassle because you know I, I was trying not to suck them up and you know put them in the waste and you know. So, but then I noticed that these ones that were floating were the ones that actually were working really well. So I did away with the two-dimensional culture and I, I started to do everything and allowed them just to float around because we used to have to put a sticky, a sticky sort of. Um, like protein onto the surface to encourage the cells to stick down so we did away with all that and we started working in three-dimensional culture and I was seeing very similar to things to what this Japanese researcher had published and I was actually writing my manuscript at the time that I seen his published so I had had a little cry and then I got over it (laughs) and then I thought you know what this is actually good because I'm backing up his work and his results were slightly different but he, w- he had a slightly different recipe than me. So it actually was very informative. It gave us much more information about what was needed to make retinal tissue in the lab. So what we were saying is when, when he- the human eye develops normally, so you've got your brain which is beginning to develop, which is obviously at the front of the organism, and there's two little just out pouches that come out from the side of the developing head. And it's very clear tissue. When you, when you shine light on it, it Sort of glows. It's almost, you know, it's a really beautiful glowing structure. Very phase bright. It's almost like glass, looks a bit like glass. And this is called the optic vesicle. And this is the earliest form of the eye. And as development continues, the optic vesicle collapses in on itself and it sort of forms a cup. So it starts as a circle and it collapses in on it itself and this forms like a double walled cup sort of on each side of the developing brain. And the outside of this cup goes on to become your retinal pigmented epithelium. So that's, what, that's how that arises. And the inside of the cup divides, and the layers become thicker, and more cells arise. And then the different cell types start to appear, including your photoreceptors. And that's what becomes your, your light sensitive retina. So that's how life for the eye starts. And not only was society seeing this form, um, these, these forming in culture, but this is actually how it was happening in culture. So the way that we were um, encouraging the retinal tissue to grow was actually mimicking what happens during normal human development. And that that was quite scary, actually, for me, the first time i seen it, because I didn't quite believe it. But when I did believe it and I realised this is what we were really getting, it was an incredible moment. Um, and it's probably one of the best meetings I've ever had with my boss. I don't think she's ever been happier than, with me than that. So... When I took some of these structures and I I chopped them into very thin slices and put them onto a glass slide, and I stained them in a way that allows different cell types to glow. And when you look at them under the microscope, these structures were actually really quite complex, so we weren't just getting sort of random retinal cells growing together and not being in the right place. These were actually, there were layers of cells which were developing, the photoreceptors were in the right place, the ganglion cells were in the right place, and we were even getting some retinal pigmented epithelium. So that this was absolutely incredible and very exciting at the time when we first started to see this. Um, and importantly, we were able to grow some really beautiful photoreceptors. So one of the biggest limitations that scientists have, when you're trying to grow tissue in the lab and it's not in its natural environment, it's not in its normal situation in the body, receiving circulation and signals, and you know, sort of, it's not surrounded by connective tissue and things like that. It's difficult to completely mimic what happens inside the body. So researchers were quite limited in what they were producing. It wasn't fully maturing. So we had quite an an, an early embryonic retina which was forming, um, and we were getting the different cell types, but we had a lot of trouble pushing it to just that sort of b- m- sort of more more fully differentiated, more fully mature cell types that we normally see in an adult eye. But actually we were adding certain factors um, when we were feeding our cells and we noticed that this was really helping our cells mature. So we actually managed to... I've got a picture here. Sorry, I forgot to advance my slides. That's a Japanese gentleman, uh, Yoshiki Sasai, who published about around the same time that I was doing my manuscript. And um, I've got a slide here showing the optic vesicle as it emerges during development. On the left, it's a very bright tissue and how this develops into like a sort of mini eyeball in the lab. So this is pictures of mine from the lab. And here I'm showing on the left-hand side, um, depicted by the arrow, is a a rod photoreceptor that we were able to grow within these these retinal structures we were seeing in the lab. So we've moved away from it just being a very early photoreceptor cell and it's beginning to to develop this outer segment, this long cylindrical um, outer segment which rods normally have. Um, And this is very important um, because the the cells we want to produce, it's important that we know that they can actually function. But in order to test whether they can function, we have to get them to fully mature first. Um, And when you test these, um, so we do a procedure called electrophysiology and that sort of looks at the electrical properties of cells. And it's it's a very important feature of photoreceptors and how they function, how they convert the light into electrical signals. And it turns out that some of our photoreceptors are actually working in a similar way to to those photoreceptors that you see in the adult eye. Not all of them, not all of them have matured yet, but a small proportion we are able to get them to that stage of maturity, which is a really really promising result. Um, so bizarrely, as well as other just seeing the retinal tissue. Um, I was beginning to think that I was seeing other things forming as well, and I wasn't sure whether this was true or not. So again, I I took the tissue, I cut it into thin slices, put it on the slide, looked at it under the microscope, and in fact, we were getting lens tissue and cornea, which were forming alongside the retinal tissue. So what was fascinating about this, and no one else had ever shown this before, what was fascinating about this, we weren't just getting retinal tissue, but we were getting like a little early developing eye, so we had different components different other sort of accessory structures of the eye. So this then opened up a whole host of other um, opportunities for the lab to study cornea and lens and various things as well. So how is this retinal tissue that we're making from stem cells useful to us? Well, largely because there's still no medical treatment for many forms of blindness. So there's a, a massive drive across the world, not only to try and understand why faulty genes are causing problems for people or what's happening with different developmental problems which are causing people to lose their vision. Um, But there's a massive drive around the world now to use these stem cells to study these different things. So what we can do for the first time, so I've told you about the stem cells, I've told you that um, we can start to make a little developing eye essentially. Um, So really we can study human eye development for the first time in a dish in the lab. And that's incredibly valuable because human developmental tissue is such a scarce resource. It, it can be available um, in, certain clinic- in certain places around the UK, but it's a very scarce and precious resource. So there's a very limited amount of material for us to study, um, and it's very difficult to get hold of. So being able to replicate aspects of human development in a dish um, has been incredibly informative for us. It's also particularly um, important for the study of disease. So if you want to look at the biological effects of a faulty gene, you can take a patient's skin cells carrying a particular faulty gene, you can hit the reset button, make them back into induced pluripotent stem cells, and then you can make retinal tissue from those, that patient's stem cells, and you can take a look as the retinal tissue is developing and actually see when things are starting to go wrong. What is it that's causing things to go wrong? So that is just, I mean, if if people had told me when I was doing my PhD this was going to be possible, I would not have believed them. So it's incredible how quickly the field has advanced. I wanted to discuss with you one scientific paper, which is an example from 2014, which shows beautifully how patient-induced pluripotent stem cells provided new information on a faulty gene. And this comes out from Bud Tucker and Edwin Stone's lab. It's a very famous retinal lab, very large lab in Iowa in the States. And this, um, this involves a gentleman who is an, an adult male who had autosomal recessive RP. Um, and the onset was in his third decade of life. And what the scientists did was they sequenced this gentleman's genome and they found, um, they found a faulty gene, um, they found a faulty Usher 2A gene. And, but this alone wasn't causing this gentleman's problems because they found another gene which was related and it was a combination of, of, the, of these two genes that was actually giving this gentleman his problems. But they didn't really know why this gentleman's retina was affected. So in this gentleman, his photoreceptors were developing normally but then they were starting to die and over time he was losing his photoreceptors, they were just dying. So what they did was just what, what I sort of discussed before. They took this gentleman's skin cells, took a biopsy, bathed them in a special reset medium, made stem cells from this gentleman's skin cells, and then made retina from the stem cells that they'd made from this patient. And what they found was that when they grew the retina, when they allowed the retina to develop, that the photoreceptors were developing normally. They looked really nice. There was a lovely population of them. They were sitting in the right place. But when the photoreceptors started to reach maturity, something was going drastically wrong. So the cells were getting very stressed, and they were starting to die. So they went on to study this further, and they found out that actually the, the faulty gene code was causing one of the proteins, which is very important for the normal function of photoreceptors, to be misfolded. So proteins are sort of folded up, and you know they have v- a very specific shape. And this faulty code that this gentleman was carrying was stopping the proteins being folded in the right way, and this was causing a lot of cell stress and the cell was just saying, you know what, something's not right here, and it was, it was terminating itself, it was basically dying. So that's a really nice example of where, for the first time, researchers were able to work out how a, a faulty gene is affecting um, someone biologically. Of course, being able to study diseases in this way as well informs scientists and clinicians about what treatment might be best for different patients, and it can give us a patient-specific insight into what's going wrong and therefore how best to approach treatment with each specific patient. And so it's, it's a bit like personalised medicine, which isn't available now, but I'm sure if you fast forward in the future, there'll be much more personalised medicine available, particularly in rare cases where we don't really know what's happening. And also being able to test new drugs and treatments on retinal tissue made from a patient in the lab it means you you can completely avoid animal research. And we're not at the stage at the moment where we can completely stop using animals because actually a lot that we know about retinal disease and different retinal conditions has come from using animal models. And that's a difficult thing to to maybe take on board and it's a difficult thing to to sort of do as a researcher. But actually a lot of the information we've, we've gained from that has been in the past from animal models and we're now making this transition to using stem cells to replace animal models. We aren't there yet, but this is the way of the future, and we are getting there. Um, And I'm a real advocate for moving in that direction and using stem cells where possible. And finally, these cells can be used for transplantation. So instead of maybe now having to use embryonic stem cells for transplantation in patients, now you can take the patient's own cells, you can reset them back to a stem cell population, And you can grow different tissue types. It doesn't have to be for the retina. It can be for, you know, it can be cartilage, it could be muscle, it could be whatever you want. As long as we've got the recipe, you can make that from these stem cells. So, obviously, we are particularly interested in replacing photoreceptors and the retinal pigmented epithelium. However, a point to make is that transplantation, unfortunately, won't be effective um, depending on the patient and depending on the faulty gene they carry. Um, because if you make if you make stem cells from that patient, the the de- the, the sort of genetic code carried by those cells is going to be the same as the patient. So that then means it may it may not mean in all cases, but it's likely to mean that if you then make photoreceptors from that patient, that they're likely going to act in the same way as the faulty ones that this patient already has. So this is a very a very big field now about looking at gene correction and gene editing. Um, and this is definitely Joe's arena, not mine. So I'll pass you over to Joe at this point, and he's going to tell you a little bit about um, gene correction and gene editing.
1: Afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Carla, for that uh, introduction to stem cells in the retina, and uh, thanks to the organisers for inviting us to talk today. Um, I'm, so as Carla said... So first of all, are you ready for more science? (laughs) You you sure about that? I bet you never thought you'd say that. But um, um, so, as Carla said, I'm going to try and talk about some genome editing. Um, So this goes under many names, simply to say genome engineering or gene editing. Basically, the concept is to try and um, alter the the DNA code. So as you heard from Alison, that the, the DNA is a code. That codes for various proteins that then build the cells and then which build our body um, so this 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 code is like an instruction manual basically to create um, a human and um, unfortunately, sometimes uh, there may be um, one instruction missing it could just be a letter um, or one of these codes that are missing, and that can cause um, a problem in the in the building block of life um, so what we're trying to do now is to potentially go and correct this using um, editing. Now, people have tried this for for years and years, and it's been very, very complex, particularly in human cells, because there's lots of mechanisms to stop the DNA being changed. Of course, because if you could really easily change the DNA, then uh, the cell wouldn't function properly. So, um, there've been many advances to get to this stage where we are, and actually. This started by um, scientists just studying um, bacteria, basically. And um, so this is a really good reason, a really good point, why you should just let scientists go and, as crazy as it sounds, go on and just research what they want to do, because this led to a truly, hopefully, um, revolutionary technology. So um, bacteria have an um, immune system, which is quite unusual since they're just one single cell, but it uses... um, Molecules within their cells, so little p- little proteins in their cells, to actually recognise and chop up DNA when they get infected. So l- any living orgas- organism could be infected. Like we can get a cold, um, viruses, etc. A bacteria can get a virus, and because they don't have an immune system like we do, they have to invent. Uh, they have over billions of years of evolution invented their own, where they chop up the DNA to get rid of the virus. So a virus is just a piece of DNA or RNA. Um, but, but, but often in this case, DNA will infect a bacteria and uh, they have a system which chops it up. But what, so about 23 years after um, scientists found this, um, some other scientists found they could adapt this system so they were able to engineer or hack this system to, comp- to change it to recognize a specific piece of DNA. Um, they then did some further studies and found they could um, use the system in mammalian cells and in human cells. So what they were able to do was make a, c- uh, make a cut in the DNA, so they could cut the DNA at a certain point. Um, and this is very, very important, although it, it sounds crazy. We get little cuts in our DNA quite often, and we have an amazing system within our cell to repair our DNA. So, if you are on the beach, for example, and you're sunbathing, uV can get into our skin cells and damage DNA, but we have fortunately have a very nice repair system which will repair a lot of this DNA um, and that's as we age, we get little mutations within um, the DNA, um, most of which are benign and have no uh, uh, no effect um, lo- largely due to this repair mechanism so what this technique does is it cuts the DNA at a very specific point um, within our genome, and then the cell system can repair this DNA. And if we're very clever, we can put in an extra piece of DNA which has the correct template. So to repa- Because the, um, the DNA is a code, if you put in a template that mirrors that code, you can actually insert the correct code back into a place where previously it was incorrect. So we cut at this place where the mutation exis- resides in the DNA, and then we put in another piece of DNA which can repair it. Now, this is uh, absolutely m- mind-blowing. Um, um, when I was studying for my degree, there was no way really to re- to do any of this, particularly in um, in human cells, and um, particularly now we can start to do this in human stem cells. Now they're particularly. Um, delicate cells, and it's taken a few years to be able to try and do this now in in stem cells, but we're able to do this in the lab. So now you can see there's going to be a a merging or a marrying of of all these new technologies, which is really pushing the field forward and really advancing um, this research. So as Carla described, you can get this induced pluripotent stem cell, so you could take a skin cell from anyone and turn the clock back, to make it a stem cell, we can then, if if that stem cell or if that person had a mutation, for example, you could then correct that in the stem cell and then you could grow um, tissue which was exactly the same um, from the person but no longer has that mutation inherently in in that tissue. So you can start to see the power of this technology. Unfortunately, (laughs) we're at a very early stage and we're trying to find out how this ab- does affect the cells um, when we do this. Um, but some analogies are used uh, are that we can just use a very accurate pair of scissors to cut the DNA. Um, these are called molecular scissors, so really tiny scissors. Cut the DNA and then transfer the, c- the DNA code to make a correct code. Um, so that's what we're doing, trying to do at the moment. Now, just this year, there have been some um, pioneering studies in retinitis um, pigmentosa, in RP. The first, first one was in a mouse, so the people f- for decades have, um, have used mouse models to study um, blindness because of some naturally occurring blind mice. More than three, in fact. Um, <laughs> so people have used these models to study and see why um, you know, f- um, certain mutations may cause um, uh, the disease. And this is before the advent of stem cell te- technology. So um, these have been really important models. So what they did was they used a technique. And I don't know if you've heard of CRISPR. This is no longer somewhere to keep your lettuce. CRISPR is now a, um, a, a, a technique, the most well-developed and uh, most easily to manipulate way to correct um, a gene, for example. So. It's called CRISPR-Cas9, is its full name. Um, it, it's an acronym which I won't go into. Um, it's a very complicated um, name because it was found in bacteria and scientists like to create long names to describe things. But basically these are these this little scissors which recognize a piece of DNA um, that you tell it to, basically. So um, in the lab we can engineer this to send these scissors to cut a specific piece of DNA Put in another piece of DNA that matches almost exactly this piece of DNA, but with the change of a code, so sometimes just even one letter, um, so we can just quickly change that um, to make uh, a normal copy of the gene. But in this case, um, so they f- were able to fix, sorry, in, in the mouse able to fix this gene and see that the, the mice actually in some cases regain some vision. Um, if they did this at an an early enough stage in the the mice's life. Um, And this is um, absolutely fantastic, one of the first studies to show that you could use this technique in in live animals, which is quite incredible. Um, We're going back a step in human cells here, so we're having these cells in the lab, as Carla talks about. We're growing these stem cells in a dish. We can then introduce these little scissors into the cells. um, They cut it, and they repair um, now this is quite difficult to do, but these researchers did a fantastic job, and they, they looked at um, x link retinitis pigmentosa, the R P G R gene, and they're able. There was a what we call a point mutation, which is this one letter change in the code. They were able to change it back to the correct letter, and um, this was just this is just a proof of concept. So they've just done this within the stem cells, and um, they now have this resource, which is this. Stem cell taken from a patient with X-Link RP, which is now l- no longer has this mutation. So it's now just from this patient and is, an, um, is a normal um, stem cell, shall we say. Um, so they can, what they're going to do now is then go on to make retina. Now, what's really cl- key here is if you want to understand a disease, what they can do is they can, they have his um, stem cell which harbors the mutation and they have his stem cell which doesn't. So they can now in parallel try and make retina from both and see um, where, the, where the problem arises or what, can, what causes this. And this is very important for disease studies and I'm sure it will be repeated um, for many different um, forms of uh, well any disease really you can do this. But certainly for retinal diseases, we're starting to do this in the lab as well um, with different forms of RP. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to understand the disease and generate um, cells without mutation, hopefully for future transplants um, something that i 'm oh, that 's just the lab something that i 'm also interested in is using this t- technology and i 've been doing this now for a few years to try and help to improve the the, um, the efficiency of the derivation of the retina, so how quickly and how easily we can make mature retina from stem cells now Carla earlier alluded to the fact that. This is still quite a long process and they're not always fully mature um, and maybe only a small proportion become fully mature. So we are trying to always, in the lab, trying to improve this. And one kind of crazy idea that some of our scientists have had is that we use a jellyfish protein, which is fluorescent. Now you may have seen this, the green mouse that um, crazy scientists have created. But what I'm able to do is add this fluorescent um, gene onto the end of a of a normal gene and then the protein made from this gene glows green um you can get other co- other colors as well um that we've invented but um uh, g- green is very nice and um Do you have pink? uh <laughs> yes you, f- we can make pink yeah <laughs> We can actually make any color now, which is, which is fantastic. So what, what we can do is there are certain genes that are very critical for your function of your retina. So when we're making this retina in the lab, we want to check that this gene is switched on. So within development, what will happen is that at certain times, in a very orchestrated, um, quite amazing um, uh, way, the genes get switched on or switched off at certain points through development. So once you've made your eye, you want to switch off certain genes, but keep certain genes on to maintain it, for example, um, which is very important to have a healthy organ of, of any type. So if we see a gene being switched on more quickly because we've changed the recipe to make the retina, this really helps us. And if we have a really good reporter for this, which is a green light, then it's fantastic. So we can try different recipes so when you're baking a cake, for example, you want to always improve your recipe to make the perfect cake. So we want to make the perfect retina. So by changing the recipe and seeing how quickly we g- get green retina, um, we, can, um, we can make you know, um, retina more quickly. So this is really important for us. So what I've been doing is putting um, on certain really important genes a little green f- fluorescence, and we can really start to improve the way we make retina. Now, obviously, if we make retina in the future for transplantation, we won't, we won't be doing this. This is just purely for optimization and improvement of our uh, techniques that we use in the lab. So, it just draw some conclusions now from what Carla and I talked about. What is now starting to be possible is we can take stem cells, we can make um, a retina in a dish. This is just a... a incredible step forward anyway. And we're always trying to improve that step so we can make, uh, as m- we can make more retina and we can make more mature retina. Um, and as, as close to what we have in our body as possible. Um, w- and we can study diseases by taking induced pluripotent stem cells from people harboring mutations. And um, we can e- even now start to correct this mutation. So you could have uh, your own Say if you had a condition, you could take your own cells, turn back to a stem cell, correct the the problem, and then have a a source of cells, which hopefully in the future, we'll be able to transplant in. Now lots of studies are happening along all that pathway to try and progress this. So um, there are trials where there are transplants happening at the moment with retinal pigmented epithelium or retinal progenitor cells. And these are very early safety trials as I was saying with the gene therapy trials, these are very, very early to check that there's no, nothing untoward happening. But This is a very exciting step. Scientists like us are working in the lab to try and improve production of retina and to see if we can correct these genes um, that uh, cause uh, problems in the first place. Um, and I think that's it, really. There's a lot of work going on, but we're, we're trying our best. And I'm just gonna show a quick photo of our lab because there's many people involved in this research in Linda Laker's lab um, and we're all working towards um, future therapies for blindness. Thank you very much. I'll hand over to Sue.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Carla and Joe. I hope you all enjoyed that. It's really exciting stuff. And I know, and as you heard from Alison earlier, you know, it's uh, lots of things are at early stages but we are, in the 40 years this charity has existed, um, and from my own diagnosis being told there'd never be anything they could do, because it was genetic, it's, um, yeah, it's it's very exciting times, and it's, it's moving much quicker, I think, than any of us ever anticipated, so watch this space. Um, We're going to have our break now. We're over a little while, but that's because we took some Q&A when we hadn't originally planned it. So um, tea and coffee is back in the room that you were in. If you would rather stay in here, then just put your hand up and we'll go and get your drinks for you. Um, And if you could be back, um, we're scheduled half an hour, but if you could be back sort of within 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, it would give us a little bit of catch-up time. And um, you're in for a treat after the break. <laughs> Thank you.
5: I was on my way at the swimming pool. Somebody said, it's over there. <laughs> what do you
0: need first?
5: Hearing. In that one. Right, hold on a second. I'll just put my ear aids in so I can hear you. Well, I do an introduction. Just sit
4: there.
5: If I can find them. Okay. Okay. That's one. <laughs> That's two. Put my glasses on so I can maybe see you. <laughs> I think you all know the score. A bit like a pip assessment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no? <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> right. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Colin Hetherington. Yeah. I'm from a wee place called Annan, South West Scotland. And in the last few years, my life has changed quite dramatically. Um, I've went from being a normal, hard-working guy to someone who's been blessed with Usher syndrome, so RP, the hearing loss, the whole... um, for my sins... So what I'm just trying to show you today is I need different things for me now to survive. Clothes would be an ideal thing. <laughs> as usual, couldn't find them. Right. I just would like to say, I'd just like to try something different, you see, just to get the point across. We're on the same boat. Stripped back naked. I'm the same as everybody else. Sorry. <coughs> With balance issues as well. (coughs) Right, so, first diagnosis, how was I diagnosed? I was diagnosed about 21. Uh, I'm now 50, I was 52 weeks ago. When I was diagnosed, there was no such thing as internet. There was no research into RP. And, basically, I was told, probably like many of you, you've got RP, you're going to go blind. We now know that's not necessarily the case. I've now went from, I think the standard is 160 degrees. I'm now uh, down to about three degrees. But the difference is I enjoy my life. I go everywhere, do everything. I do talks like this, and I just enjoy myself. Life is for living. I've now got a lovely partner. She's got a guide dog too. I've got a guide dog too. Um, We've just back from Crete last week, which was a bit of a challenge, granted. Mm-hmm. Can't even get my shirt on. Am <laughs> <laughs> get <laughs> I getting an airplane? Well, I have found in the last two years, my attitude has changed. My attitude has changed dramatically. need the hat to stop the glare in the eyes. I see probably many of you wear the hat as well. <coughs> the dark glasses stop the sun in my eyes. I need the cane. needed the cane last week in Crete. Pushed me out of my comfort zone, but what did I do? I've also got my dog here as well, Jason. Is he interested? <coughs> Jason. <laughs> Jason's on a break. Right, so what I'm here today for is, basically, to show you the difference. My number one best friend in Scotland is my free travel pass, and believe you me, I use that. I travel trains length and breadth of Scotland, and that is worth its weight in gold. (coughs) If you guys have got it, use it. It's absolutely worthwhile having. I never go anywhere without my torch. I just bought a brand new torch. Um, a thousand lumen, which is a bit mental, but you know the score. It's either too light, too dark, you can never get it right. So I need that wherever I go. My iPhone, I've always, always got to have my iPhone with me. It does that many different things for me. That is my office in my pocket. And Lynn guns a bit crazy because it guns non stop. So. It's uh, a big thing. My hair need batteries. I learned a long time ago, well not that long ago, my hair need batteries. I remember I went into a shop with someone, I jumped out of the car, never took a cane with me, before I had the guide dog. I never took the cane, I linked down my arm. they went one way to get some shopping. I just stood where I was. The lights went out in the shop, because it was shut in time, a big superstore. And both hearing aids went at the same time. So I've never felt so isolated in my world. That's when Usher syndrome really did hit home. So now I'm very, very cautious. Hearing aid batteries are a must. Are a must. (coughs) Like I say, I've got the cane. I've also got an Apple Watch. I don't know if you guys are aware of what the Apple Watch does. The Apple Watch links to your phone, and it can actually give you directions. It's got a thing on it called ticks, which you program the phone to give you directions, Google Maps, and it taps your wrist for the directions left and right. So I find myself in some crazy places. Um, I mean, in the last two years, we've been to London three times, which I never even thought I'd venture Talking about London, never mind going, Um, amazing places we've been to, uh, really fast. The last time we were at London was three weeks ago, and we had two guide dogs on the London Eye, which was (laughs) pretty amazing, pretty amazing. So like I say, we really push the boat, and we go, i tell you a funny story about things that happen, you have to learn to accept the fact that these things are happening to you. You have to learn to accept the fact that help is there. So if you use the trains, please book assistance. If you use airplanes, please book assistance. We get treated like royalty. I know you guys are no different to us. You will get treated like royalty. We, The first time we flew from Glasgow to London, it's only an hour, and we get to take the dogs. And they give the dogs a free seat. So for 55 quid return, I'm going to fly but what happens is they come and get you at the door they escort you right the way through that airport and they take you right to special seats they they announce uh, you get to board that plane first you sit and wait at the other end everybody's off the plane and you're escorted out of the building flying has never been easier on the trains it's exactly the same it's exactly the same I've even been blessed to be in the first class on virgin trains. So <laughs> I've even had a free breakfast. <laughs> I'm sure Richard Branson could afford it. So just use it, guys. Use it. I know a lot of you, I, I'm not joking when I tell you this, it's less than three years ago, I could not get on a bus. I couldn't get on a bus. And I remember the fear of getting on the bus in the dark. I can actually, I was talking to Sue last night with this. I can actually remember getting on a bus in the dark, and I sat on a teenage lad's knee, and the bus was full of teenagers. So he got a load of pelters, the boy, to be honest, and I got a few more. So I wasn't a, that, that really knocked me back a lot. But then I decided to go for the guide dog, and then that was another stage in my life. Um, I really wanted a guide dog. To be honest, the first time I applied for the guide dog, I was refused because he never understood RP. He said I had too much vision, which is ludicrous to each and every one of us in here. So I applied two years later, and I demanded I spoke to another person. And um, basically they said, to get a guide dog, you must qualify with the long cane. To me, I imagine a lot of you will be the same. I hated that white cane with a passion, it labelled me, it advertised blindness. I even went through a stage, I've got multicoloured canes, but it worked for me, so I could use it. And what I find, I talked to a lot of people, they relate to the same thing, especially cane training. If anybody that's doing cane training, listen, and listen good, <laughs> we do not like being taken for cane training on your front door. <laughs> that really, really, annoys a lot of people that I know. It's because all of a sudden everybody else has been made aware you've got a problem. So what I found is, like Sir has now got a pink cane, Uh, there's blue canes, there's whatever, as long as it works. I've got a black cane because I wear a seat quite a lot. But I learned to use my cane. I wore three three balls down in a matter of three months. Um, I learned to run in the dark with the cane. Uh, My mindset was so much that I wanted a dog. For me to get the dog, I had to be signed off. And when I got the dog, I decided that instead of being a prisoner in my own home, I was going to actually go out there and do as much as I could and enjoy it, see where it takes me, see what happens. And to be honest, boy, I've had had one hell of a journey. I've been to Scottish Parliament three times, Um, I was actually at number 10 Downing Street last June this June um, we were in the houses of Westminster not long ago we've just been invited to meet Princess Anne the the list goes on and on my diary is non-stop I'm never at home in fact I've never been at home for two weeks (laughs) so we just go on and on and on but life has become so much sweeter it's almost like I have now got three degrees vision, three degrees from 160. How long that will last, I don't know, but I certainly hope it does. Um, what they're saying is you might have good central vision for a long time, which really confuses people when you've got a guide dog, you're sitting on a train reading your phone, um, and you get some funny looks. But I've now, at this stage, I can laugh about it. I can have a laugh. I can have a joke. There's approximately eight different stages of going through blindness. There's the heart, there's the anger, there's the pain, there's the frustration, the why me. I've been through them all. Y- you go through the stages, why even bother getting up? Why, sh- why should these things happen to me? Why is my brother all right? You know what I mean? It's all, these things are all relevant, and I'm sure they're all relevant to you guys in the room. So... It's a case of, I've now come out of that. Um, I enjoy my life to the full, and I intend to do that. Today is a wee bit of laugh. It's a wee bit of lightheartedness, if you like. Um, That's just to show you guys what's achievable out there. I've been asked on many committees. I'm more than happy to help Sue out. Um, Sue's helped me out tremendously. She's dropped me in it from great heights many times. Um, she got me to start a group for RP in Newcastle. And the group has went from strength to strength. We started two years ago with four people. Sue's very good recommendations. <laughs> and we've now got over 50 people attending meetings. Um, and we do the same. We have a good laugh. But I've watched people come from that initial stage of being diagnosed right the way through. And I've watched them change. And I've watched them suddenly become happy. What I keep saying to people, it's like less sight, more vision. Because you have to be aware of what's happening to yourself. You've got to remember this. You've not changed. It's just things have changed to you. All right? So now then, what we're going to do is have a coach interview with the lovely Graham here. Right, I'm with you.
2: But before, <laughs> before we start, thanks very much, Colin, for, for uh, sharing a really personal <laughs> story. Now, as, as you would have noticed, Colin coming in his swimming trunks, that was him just straight back for Rio. <laughs> so a uh, guy is one of the Paralympic swimmers. And in fact, he's, he's also a diver as well, because he apparently drops him in it a lot as well. So... Uh, so before we go to the next session, just on that theme, I just wanted to give a wee shout out to our own Neil Fahey, who is a young man from uh, Aberdeen, who just uh, got silver in the Paralympic cycling just uh, at the weekend. He's taken part in the road race uh, today. Uh, I don't think he's in contention today, but his mum Linda was here earlier on, so she's just flew back through the night to be here as well. Um, Neil has won tons of golds and silvers at the last Olympics and uh, world championships, holds the world record for the 1,000-meter uh, dash and cycling and everything else as well. He's really good, good to Ness as well. Uh, we're proud of him. So just a wee shout-out for Neil today as well. So. Now, I'm really worried about this next bit because I'm away to be interviewed by Colin, so... They said a sofa session, but I not see a sofa anywhere, so... Okay. Come on. Okay. Come right. I've
1: got mic. Okay. <laughs> okay.
5: Okay. Okay. go. Sure. Right. Okay. I've got mic. Okay. Okay. Thank you, sir. <laughs> right. Back with the mic again. Could be dangerous. Could be dangerous. Uh-huh. Right then, Graham. What we're going to do is just going to have a sofa session. We've done this in Newcastle and it was very successful. Um, we'll have a socia- sofa session. Um, I'm going to chat to Graham. And you'll realise that a lot of the stories that happen with us guys basically run true with a lot of you guys as well. And hopefully you can relate to many things that said in this discussion. This is totally unrehearsed. Um, this is just off the cuff conversation, um, but I think now you see that I can relate to Graham in many ways. I hope you can see that. Um, we'll have a sofa discussion, and then we'll have a group chat. So we'll have all the scientists and everything sitting together at the end of it. And whatever questions you've got the scientists, whatever questions you've got for Graham or myself, we'll be more than happy to answer. And we'll really hope that you enjoy this. So, Graham, mm-hmm. first of all, can you tell me what age you are? I've got my kit. Okay, I've got right.
2: my um, I'm 49, uh, so I'm a few months behind you. Right. So, when were you first diagnosed? Um, I was 22 at the time, um, and uh, I'm one of five. Uh, so four of us have uh, developed RP, but um, we're first generation so there's no family history or anything like that. But, so I was 22 um, and uh, born and brought up in Cullen, in the northeast of Scotland. Uh, a wee story behind that, I suppose, was when we were all mm-hmm. little kids, none of us could see in the dark, uh, which I'm sure a lot of the folk in the room will recognise with RP. Um, and my mum took us to the local doctor at the time. And his diagnosis was, ach, they'll be fine." Uh, Lots of no, no, I never (laughs) got a car up one. But he just said, "Lots of folk are night blind, and we'll probably just go out of it." So there you go. So that then meant, and I mean, hearing some of the discussions today from the scientists and the genetic uh, um, folk as well, you know, although at that stage, you know, there's not enough. A lot could be done with RP. I would have not gone and left school and became a fabricator welder in the shipyards. That was probably not a good, a, a good career choice. So if I had known I had RP, that's probably the last place with getting welding flashes, et, et, cetera, et cetera, with light-sensitive rods and cones. So probably not a good move and probably wouldn't, well, probably wouldn't have learned to drive, although I'm,
5: I'm glad I did. So I had f- f- five years of driving until I had to, to give that up. Right, I think we're on the same wavelength here. I was diagnosed a bit, probably about 21, um, passed my driving test at 17.
2: Uh-huh.
5: Um, probably shouldn't have, um, night blindness as well. Um, but I, I was like many people, I thought it was just a normal. I thought I was normal uh-huh. because nobody else had it. And I didn't realize I was different to anybody else. Uh-huh. So it was very, very difficult. One of my jobs actually was, uh, I was just talking about this the other night, I used to be a steel erector mm-hmm. and uh, I couldn't even see myself getting on a ladder now, No mind getting on the steel. So it's, <laughs> it's funny. It is pretty crazy that we're still here actually. <laughs> uh. Well I think I've maybe used seven lives, I've maybe uh, got two left. Yeah. yeah. So <coughs> so you you went on to, so how did the driving affect you then? W- when you finished driving, did that affect your worker? Well I
2: as soon as I was diagnosed, that was it, you know, couldn't I, I, I worked in industry, I, worked, I served my apprenticeship in a shipyard and I was starting <coughs> to get bumps and bruises all the time and of course, a pretty tough environment, so nobody cared, I know I said something else, uh, nobody to work with cared, you know, it, that was just f- went with the terror trade, got some really bad bashes in the head now that I had dressed right. up and i did done my four year apprenticeship and then I'd worked another a two years in my trade and then it was coming up to Christmas, and i just been just been laid off, and uh, I remember a guy um, at, that I worked with, and you see the, the Rocky films, Rocky Two, and at one point, he's thinking of coming out of retirement, and the guy says, well, watch my wee finger here, and he brings it into side. and this guy at my work did the very same sort of thing, he says, and I couldn't see his finger, it was virtually in front of me, and he says, you've got problems, you better go and get it checked out. Mm. So I went and got my eyes tested, I was just, as I said, made redundant, got my eyes tested uh, at the local opticians and he picked up RP, or no, sorry, she picked up RP, um, uh, referred me to eye specialist, but didn't I say that there was a, an issue? And I remember going at first appointment, my dad drove me over and um, thinking, Gosh, I hope I don't have to wear that thick milk bo- bottle glasses, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I, that's really that's where my head was at with that. So, uh, But then, of course, diagnosed with RP, end of career, if you like, end of driving, right. getting married the following year, but next. So, you know, it was a bit of a
5: bummer, at the time. Well, I think. Well, actually, something very similar happened to me. I, I can remember I dropped a, a pencil on the kitchen floor in my mother's house and... Uh, for the life of I me, mean, I couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see it. You could probably see an elephant standing in front of you, but you couldn't see the pencil sure. on the side of the floor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Um, so my mother sent me the opticians. I went to the opticians. She picked, uh, well, a guy picked up. It was RP, but never said a thing to me. Referred uh-huh. me to the hospital. Okay. Um, a Polish doctor, I remember, he just turned around and says, you have RP, nothing more we can do, the door's there basically and you're going to go blind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose that's where I went into denial. I went into about 20 odd years denial. I refused to speak totally mm-hmm. to anybody about RP. Yeah. Um, I can remember just about being escorted out of the hospital um, after a yearly checkup because after <laughs> yearly checkups, it was very well known in them days after about five years of course I'd went on had started my family, I had a son and a daughter. And uh, after about 5th year checkup, nurse pulled me at one sentence, You do realise you can have genetic counselling and I says, What for? And they went, In case you ever start a family of course I hit the roof.
4: Uh-huh.
5: I thought I was gonna get escorted out of the hospital that day yeah, <laughs> yeah. So but calmed in a bit since then calmed in a bit since then but like I say, there was very little known. Now things have changed for the better. I heard you talking about um, people in the hospital to actually deal with the uh-huh. initial shock. Yeah. There was nothing then. we oh really look back yeah. 25 years. There was nothing. Yeah. So hopefully we're on the right track with that. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. we're on the right track with that. So what happened?
2: What happened next? What happened next? Right. That was you know, so plans were getting married the following year and uh, I thought can, I, can this happen? I need to get a job, basically. Kind of go back to my to my work. So uh, I need to get a job. And uh, briefly mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on that uh, there was um, there was two things that happened. One was that uh, my dad had picked a, the letters page in the Press and Journal, a thank you letter from a chap called Les Anderson, uh, and uh, this was. Him thanking people for support of the local retinitis pigmentosa group. Right. Never. I mean, I, I had to get the, after I was diagnosed, I got to the GP to get him to write down the name of the condition because I couldn't, I didn't retain it. I was just stunned. RP. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> I, yeah, that's the easiest way. Rhett it used to get called for a while, if I remember. Uh, but uh, so we went and Les, we went to Les and Anne's house and they were fantastic. They was all sorts of information about, about RP and they did a phenomenal job setting up the, the RP society locally. And you know, uh, so got a lot of really good, useful information there. The information back in the day as, as well was the so RP will lead to total blindness, yeah. um, which we know now is not the case, uh, not always the case anyway. Um, so I, I then the, the other half of that was me and my sister Kathleen were invited because, but then she had been diagnosed as well. Were invited to an information day with Grampian Society for the Blind for. we there. Um, <laughs> Sue probably wasn't a born then, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, so, no. Uh, we went along to this information day. We heard about various services that were available uh, for the from the then Grampian Society for the Blind. And the chief executive at the time, a lovely guy called John Bailey, he asked me what I want, what I would like to do, and uh, I said, well. I don't know, I would like to get involved in social care and I would like to, I don't I don't know really. So he says, well, come and see me. So I made an appointment and I went and see ma- seen him and to cut a very long story short, uh, I had a bit of a knockback again because I was at another uh, grouping of service users and somebody there said to me, forget about work, I'll never work again and I was all for calling off my wedding and everyone else. I thought that's it, that's it, what's the point of that? Roll off. Um, but. You know, thank for that. was a piece of advice I never listened to. Right. Um, and then I met John Bailey, chief exec of Grampian Society for the Blind. He invited me along, got a job as a social work assistant, uh, uh, and that was for a two-year fixed-term uh, contract. That was 27 years ago. Um, and in that two years, I went back to college. Because, hey, I left school with three fantastic O grades you know, So it was exactly like I'd set the world on fire. I went back, did higher English, uh, developed long cane skills then right. uh, and had uh, to move into, so move so that, here.
5: so that was a stage of acceptance. You yeah, you I've had, never you had, ever... You had to basically do that to move on. Well, my view was, RP's there, it's not going <coughs> to it's not gonna gonna go gonna away, so let's yeah. get on yeah. with
2: right. it. Uh, so I, I then got the job with uh, Grandpa Society for the Blind. I got onto the Social work degree training, it was distance learning, so I was working and studying at the same time. Got married to my lovely wife Tracy, so that's 26 years in. Got three lovely kids who don't Thank have RP. Um, that's even better. I've uh, been able to do further training in management. I was at Grandpa Insight for the Blind for 10 years uh, and I was eventually promoted to senior social worker. I left there uh, and I got a job with a charity called Turning Point Scotland right. who support people with addiction and. Homelessness, mental health, learning difficulties, Huntington's disease, and locally we d- developed a big Scotland charity, but locally we developed a, a whole load of uh, really fantastic services. But eleven and a half years ago, the job at um, then Grampian Society for the Blind came up as chief exec, and uh, I decided young to go for it
5: and applied for it. And you know, eleven years on, I'm still there. That's one hell of a CV. Hmm. It's hell of a CV. Uh, you need to be applauded for that because, uh, y- you know, <laughs> I <mean> it's just... <laughs> I see a lot of people lie down. I, um, I'm guilty of it myself. I was very guilty of it myself. I went through a stage of pure anger, pure frustration. I refused. Well, it's no case I refused help. I just wouldn't speak to anybody. Uh-huh. Um, it's a case of probably the help was there. Now it's different, um, I've sort of banged my head off every door that there is to bang your head off, finding out about the benefits, benefits of being hell, but that's not just for me, case, I guess that's a case for everybody in this room, um, sorting it, your accommodation, sorting it, your needs in life, guide dog, mm-hmm. um, I've had to experience everything firsthand myself, through that experience what I've learned is to share the knowledge, to help other people, because I see a lot of other people banging at doors and not getting the answers. So if I can help anybody, I'm very much like you, I'll, I'll, I'll gun it my way and help them. Um, I'm chuffed to bits that your kids have not got RP. Mm-hmm. Um, I take it, are they carriers? Or we don't know, because y- we haven't been able to
2: identify the, the a type of RP. The the, the the updated position that we had was a f- few years ago now. But the the view was expressed at the time was unless they marry they may be carriers but if even if they are unless they marry somebody who's got the exact same carrier, their kids will be fine uh-huh. as well. So yeah, so far so good. Although we you know you never ever want anybody to develop RP, but you know our view has always been we had the genetic uh, counselling uh, back back in the day before we had family. Um, you know, my wife's a nursery a nurse. there's no way we we're not going to half kids, that's for sure. And uh, I th- our attitude has always been, you know, you can do anything you want in life. It's a bit like that wee dish it, we head up on the screen. <laughs> what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And I think, you know, whether got our, if you get the right support, and I think this is what drives everybody to works at Ness, mm. if you've got the right support there and we provide folk with the right support, you can achieve anything you want with, with that support. Um, I, you know, once upon a, I, I thought, well, you know what? Miss my driving and everything else. That's something, okay, there's other ways of getting around: uh, buses and trains and whatever. Well hey, that? a few years' time, I might have a driverless car. You never know. Well, <laughs> uh, <coughs> up until then, I've got Andrea who drives my vehicle.
5: The Google car, the driverless car, is oh. actually at Glasgow today. I think at the Science Centre. Oh, wow. um, whether it comes off or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would certainly like to see it. As for you know a bit doing mileage, I don't think anybody will cover as many miles as, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> as me and the dog in a week. It's absolutely We're ludicrous. Um, it needs a lie down. Yeah, we we <laughs> travel a lot. We enjoy it. We really do enjoy traveling. But we get to meet some amazing people along the way. It's almost like, many years ago, I couldn't have speak to anybody. Y- you know what I mean? You'd see someone looking at your cane and you'd feel embarrassed or whatever. And now I just have a laugh and a joke. I make a joke about it. I can remember, um, in fact, we were asked to the Scottish Parliament to rare diseases conference last year. And my friend is totally blind with his guide dog. And we come back from Edinburgh on the train that night. And we were getting picked up at Lockerbie of all places. And (coughs) we had like an hour and a half to wait. So we went to the pub, as you do, um, with a couple in the pub. And then we're walking along the road, waiting on a lift, and there was a very drunk gentleman started singing Flower of Scotland on a Tuesday night, top of his voice. Mm. It's quite funny. So, of course, we started joining in, as you do, and enjoying ourselves. And then I got the usual with the guy. He come across and he says, is them blind dogs? <laughs> so Hope not. I just nudged my mate. I says, right, here we go. So I says, of course the dogs are blind, mate. I says, that's why they're in the harness. I says, uh, S- we stopped them walking into the woods and protecting. <laughs> so he was convinced that the dogs were actually blind. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So you just have to have mm-hmm. a sense of humor. Yeah. Another wee story in that is uh, myself and Lynn <laughs> were in Crete last week. She's going to tell exactly what I'm going to say. We were in Crete last week. And uh, I would advise anybody to do this. Book all-inclusive if you're going on holiday. Take your cane and book all-inclusive. Book your assistants at the airports. Brilliant, to get put on the bus, every. When you go to the restaurant, they look at you and they go, oof, sit yourself down, we'll give you a waiter service. So everybody else is running about with a plate. <laughs> and we're sitting, we've got a waiter service. You get treated like rightly. That's two holidays we've had this year, mm-hmm. and we've both been the same. But obviously there's a bit of a language barrier in Crete. So the lady was called Dorina. <laughs> so Dorina come across and she says to me, When you need assistance, you stand up and you shout, Dorina, I am coming. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I sort of drew the line at that at a restaurant with <laughs> 200 people in it. Uh, but it tickled me. Uh, uh, so yeah. <laughs> How would you follow that? <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> <laughs> what you find is people are generally very, very good We, If you accept the fact yourself you do need help, then people will help you. I find that tremendously. If you have the attitude, that you're quite bitter about it. And it, it's, it is a stage that you go through. It's a stage that everybody goes through, I think. Sometimes you feel like, you know what I mean? Is, is it worth getting up in the morning? But now I tend to find a film, a diary, I have no time to sit and think. I have no time to sit and think about RP mm-hmm. or, or ushers. I've just got to get on with it. So my diary is non stop, um mm-hmm. pretty full on. Mm-hmm. You've got obviously a very mm-hmm. hectic l- hectic life as well. Quite kind of busy, yeah. And I find that really works for me because mm-hmm. I've no good time to sit and think. I've no time to sit and mope about it. Um, it is what it is. It's not the best of conditions. But if I look at somebody with their arms and their legs or something, you've got to look at them and say, so it was for them as, well, as
2: right. yeah. well. My view of all that is with the work we do with service users because folk will often say that <coughs> um, about there's folk worse off worth of myself. Mm. My view that though is that does not change anything for you. Aye. It has to be person-centered mm. and it's how you use an individual that they're getting the right personalised support for That's using right. an individual That's as right. well so uh, yeah. Sue's so hovering, are we ready to move on to the next session?
0: Okay.
5: That's signal, isn't it? Oh, okay. It okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah? All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Thank okay. you very
1: much. Okay. Thanks. Next section. Shall, I, I
5: shall we get every everybody to line up for this for I'll the promise. question and answer just session? G-